Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Morning again. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Chase Iflin, and I'm the community coordinator here at Redemption Church, and have the privilege and honor of continuing our study in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount this morning. And this morning, in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll look at what Jesus has to say about retaliation and about how Christians should treat their enemies. So just to recap a bit before we begin, if you've been with us throughout this series, then you might remember that Jesus kicks off his most famous sermon with what we call the Beatitudes, which are basically a description of someone who is living a life of flourishing according to God's ways and God's kingdom. And if you were here even further back on Easter, then you might remember then that Jeff really challenged us by showing us how many of us see our Christian faith as something that gets us into heaven when we die, but has no meaningful impact or significance for our everyday lives here on earth. But Jesus shatters any illusions of that being true because he kicks off his most famous sermon, not by talking about heaven or how to get into heaven, but by describing this life of flourishing here on earth right now. Jesus says that this is a picture of someone who is living a life of flourishing, and then he proceeds to tell us about it, Um, and that's what we've been walking through the past couple weeks. So the first thing Jesus said was that Christians ought to live as salt and light in the world, and then he unpacks different areas of our lives and says this is how you go about living as salt and light. So we looked at things like anger, lust, divorce, and oaths or our speech last week. And now today we'll look at retaliation and enemies. What Jesus isn't doing here on the Sermon on the Mount, oftentimes we think it is what he's doing, is laying down these impossible to obey commands. It sounds hard to live like this, but Jesus isn't saying you must live this way in order to be one of my followers. He's saying, I want your heart wholly devoted to me. And when it is, this is the way that you will live in the world. The whole point of this section is that the scribes and Pharisees tried legalistic rule following, but it didn't work. Instead, Jesus wants our heart, and when he has our heart, this is the way that we'll live in the world. So let's jump in this week and see what Jesus has to teach us about living a life of flourishing when it comes to retaliation and enemies. So we'll start in Matthew 5, verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Jesus starts out with this same pattern that we've been seeing week after week. He quotes the Old Testament law. And this time the the law that he quotes is a famous one. An eye for an eye, 
and a tooth for a tooth. And this law was really the foundational piece of the Jewish justice system, and it provided for retributive justice when one person had wronged another person. And it hasn't just stayed in the Old Testament. This is a common principle of our justice system. It's a common principle of our culture as well. When someone wrongs us, we need to get repayment. So what was the true intent of this law in the Old Testament? Well, unlike the other areas we've looked at, Jesus doesn't clearly tell us here, but that doesn't mean that we can't figure out what God was doing. Uh, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says that this law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was given to the Israelites as a ready-made formula for punishment in order to curb vendettas. So in other words, if a law like this doesn't exist, then when one person wrongs another person, that person might retaliate to an even greater degree. Now the original wrongdoer feels wrong, so they retaliate to a greater degree and it just spirals out of control in a constant retaliation against one another. But this law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, helps keep that kind of behavior back because it sets the standard for getting even. Not getting ahead when someone wrongs you, but you're allowed to get even. And that sounds fair, doesn't it? So what is wrong with this kind of law? Well, Carson goes on to say, the trouble is that a law designed to limit retaliation and punish fairly could actually be appealed to as justification for vindictiveness. So in other words, instead of helping people get justice and keeping people from over-retaliating, this law actually makes people feel entitled to retaliation. So now when I'm wronged in some way by another person, the first question I ask is, what needs to happen for me to get repayment? But that skips over the more foundational question of, is repayment even necessary? And that's where Jesus goes and he says that in most situations, retaliation, getting even, isn't necessary for his people. So then he walks through the practical ways this works out in our lives with four different examples. The first one is really famous. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus is teaching us that a person wholly devoted to God doesn't need to retaliate when they've been wronged. Of course, this is a famous saying. We've heard hundreds of times as kids, maybe you have, if you have older kids, you've said it now a hundred times, turn the other cheek. And that's the context that I think of when I hear this. I think of a playground bully or one kid saying something mean to another kid and then turning the other cheek, walking away, leaving the situation. And I think that's probably a good application of this principle, but I don't think Jesus is just talking about playground bullies. I think he has something to say to you and me today as well. And in fact, I think in other areas of life, it's probably even harder to turn the other cheek. I'm a pretty passive person, so it'd be easy for me to turn the cheek to a playground bully, but it's a lot harder for us to turn the cheek when somebody takes advantage of us or when someone cuts us off in traffic or when someone gossips about us or when someone says something unkind about us on social media. The easier response, the natural response is to gossip about them behind their back, to seek repayment for what was taken, to get angry at the person in traffic or to say something unkind back on social media. And this principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is still a common prevailing principle of justice in our world today. So in the way of the world, it might be okay to get back at someone who has wronged us. But in the way of flourishing, Jesus says, you don't need to seek retribution. You don't need to return evil with evil. 
but just turn the other cheek. And it's funny, we use that saying so much in our culture, but I don't think we fully understand what Jesus is saying. Like I just said, I picture a playground bully and I picture turning and walking away from that playground bully. But that's not what turning the other cheek means. Turning the other cheek means staying in that situation, not ignoring the person who's wronged me. It means being willing to be assaulted or insulted again in order to continue that relationship with the person. It means remaining salt and light instead of just removing ourselves from every difficult person or difficult situation. Now, before we move on, to Jesus' other examples, I do wanna say a few disclaimers about turning the other cheek though. The first thing is that Jesus isn't making this blanket statement that passive nonviolent resistance is always the, the right path for Christians to take. As we've already seen, Jesus is using these hyperbolic examples here to make a point. He's not thinking through every single situation we might face and then telling us, this is how you live in every single situation. So the next thing that flows from that is Jesus is speaking of personal insults here, not insults to other people that you're supposed to protect or people who can't protect themselves. And so why that's important is Jesus isn't prohibiting parents from protecting their children if they're being attacked or police officers from protecting the community. That's not what he has in mind when he says, turn the other cheek. And lastly, Jesus also doesn't have in mind those who are in abusive relationships. Unfortunately, this is one of those verses that gets used often to tell people in abusive relationships that you should stay in that relationship because after all, Jesus said that you should turn the other cheek. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is doing here though is giving us, his followers, this principle for living a life of flourishing. And the principle is when someone wrongs you, you don't have to seek retribution. Then Jesus continues with these further examples. The next one is a little bit more foreign to us. And he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So in the, New, in the Old Testament, the cloak, which was the outer garment, was often used as a form of payment or pledge. So you would give it to your neighbor in return for something. But then the law in Exodus 22 said that if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you have to give it back to him before the sun goes down. So even if you didn't make payment, you were going to get your cloak back. Somebody could not take your cloak from you. So Jesus envisions this situation where you might be going, um, somebody might be taking legal action against you and in that settlement, in that lawsuit, they win your tunic, which was the inner garment. But no matter what, in that lawsuit, they would not have been able to get your cloak. But what does Jesus say about the cloak? He said, just go ahead and give it to him anyway. Jesus continues this theme of just not seeking personal retributive justice. The world would say, if someone takes your tunic, fight to get it back. And Jesus says, if someone takes your tunic, just go ahead and give him your cloak as well. This is what life in the kingdom looks like. Next, Jesus shifts gears a bit because he gives two more examples under this heading, but these examples are more about somebody inconveniencing us or taking advantage of us rather than someone outright stealing or insulting or assaulting us. And I think that Jesus knows what he's doing when he includes these examples, even though they're a bit different, because he understands just how much we've twisted this Old Testament law. 
So remember, I said that God gave this law in order to curb vindictive retaliation, but that left us feeling entitled to retributive justice in every situation. And the result of that is that it also keeps us from freely serving other people because we're always governed by this idea of fairness. So when someone does something nice for me, I have to do something nice in return for them. Or I'm inclined to only help and serve those who also help and serve me. So instead of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, it's the principle of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. What does Jesus say about this? If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So not only does Jesus say, don't seek retribution if you're, a follower, if you're a follower of mine, he also says, you should work and serve for the good of those that, are, that you might be at odds against, those who might be taking advantage of you. Jesus says Christians should be people who go the extra mile. And here again is another one of Jesus's famous sayings in this section that's become so common that we miss that precise meaning once again. We like the idea of going the extra mile when it comes to serving church, or we talk about going the extra mile at work, or we want our kids to go the extra mile at school or on their sports teams. But that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about here. If we look back at the text, we see that Jesus' followers go the extra mile when somebody's already forced them to go one mile. So Jesus is speaking more about situations where you've been asked to drop everything and help, or when someone's been taking advantage of your time or your resources, or when the person that you just can't stand to deal with asks you to help. In those situations, Jesus is asking us not just to do what's expected, not just to do what's asked, which might be hard enough, but to go the extra mile, to do so without grumbling or complaining, to serve these people. Well, then in verse 42, Jesus gets to the topic of money. He just keeps pushing on us and pushing on us in this section, doesn't he? Verse 42, he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is pretty plain and clear here. It doesn't need much explanation. A proper response for followers of Jesus when somebody is in, needs financial assistance and asks for it is to give it. As Jesus' people, we should be the most financially generous and most willing to help people on earth. Now, as I've already said, Jesus doesn't have every single situation in mind here. So he isn't saying that Christians should just give money over and over to people who are squandering it. He isn't saying that Christians have to give everything away and live aesthetic lifestyles. What he is saying, though, is that Christians should be willing to give financially to those who ask. And we need to be careful not to take these examples that Jesus gives us and explain them away for every real life situation that we find ourselves in. So whether it's the example of turning the other cheek or going the extra mile or giving away our cloak or giving financially, these are things that Jesus is saying as his followers we ought to be doing. Living this way is the path of flourishing in the world. So to quote Carson again, he says that these four examples have powerful shock value, but they were not meant to be new legal prescriptions for God's people. Yet, the illustrations must not be diluted with endless qualifications. 
The only limit to the believer's response in these situations is what love and the scriptures impose. So in other words, Carson's saying that if we approach these words of Jesus and the first thing we do is explain away why they don't apply to our situation, we've already missed the mark. The first question in a situation where someone has wronged us or sinned against us or taken advantage of us or is asking us to do something ought to be, how can I respond in love? And more often than not, the loving response will be not to retaliate, to give more than is asked, to help more than is expected, and to give financially to those in need. According to Jesus, that's a wholehearted kingdom response to retaliation and fairness. But there's an objection that kind of pops up here when we uh, hear Jesus talking like this, and Richard Foster addresses that in his book, The Celebration of Discipline. He says, we experience a fear that comes out something like this. If I do that, meaning if I live like Jesus is telling me to live, people will take advantage of me. They will walk all over me. Right here, we see the difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. When we choose to serve, we are still in charge. When we decide whom we will serve, we decide whom we will serve and when we will serve. And if we are in charge, we will worry a great deal about anyone stepping on us, that is, taking charge over us. But when we choose to be a servant, we give up the right to be in charge. And there is great freedom in this. Therefore, the fear that we will be taken advantage of and stepped on is justified. That is exactly what may happen. But who can hurt someone who is freely chosen to be stepped on? So what Foster is saying is, you know what? People are going to take advantage of you if you live like this. But so what? You've chosen this path of being a servant. You've chosen this, and this is the way of Jesus. And so we expect it. We're not hurt by it. It's how we live as salt and light in the world. Well, now we'll shift gears a little bit and look at the next section on what Jesus has to say about enemies. We'll pick back up in verse 43. He says, you have heard, it, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So as he's been doing, Jesus again starts out with the Old Testament law. But this one actually requires a little bit of explanation because at first glance, it looks like that Jesus is saying, not only does the Old Testament say, love your neighbor, it also says, hate your enemy. And that might cause us to perk up a bit and think, well, does the Bible really say that? And no, it doesn't. Nowhere in the Old Testament does God command his people to hate their enemies. But that doesn't really solve the problem though, because then we wonder, well, then why does Jesus say that? And most commentators believe that the reason Jesus includes hate your enemies here is because that had become the common Jewish rabbinical tradition that was being passed down in Jesus's day. So in other words, Jesus wasn't saying, you've heard it said in the Old Testament, you should hate your enemies. But he's saying, you've heard it said among your religious teachers, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that makes sense because that's how these teachings were passed down to the people in Jesus's day. They didn't have copies of the Old Testament. They were relying on the religious teachers and the common attitude of those teachers was love your neighbor, those who are like you, but you don't have to love your enemy, those who are not like you. I think we know what Jesus is gonna say about that. You should love your enemies as well. Love your enemies and pray 
for those who persecute you. What do you think of when you hear the word enemy? For me, I immediately think of war. So I think of like Al-Qaeda as the enemy or Nazi Germany is the enemy. Or I think about sports. So it's obviously a far uh, more trivial example, but maybe your, your sports team's biggest rival is the enemy. So either one of those examples, one is like distant and doesn't affect me and the other one is super trivial and doesn't matter. I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind when he uses this word enemy. This section has significant parallels with one of Jesus's most famous stories in all the Bible and that's the, the parable of the good Samaritan. So there in, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is approached by a lawyer who asks him, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him, well, what do you think the Old Testament tells you? And the lawyer says, I think it tells me that I need to love God and love my neighbor. And Jesus says, you're right, do this and you will live. But then the lawyer isn't satisfied. He, was, he wants to know the exact rules he needs to follow in order to love his neighbor. And so just like Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, he flips it on his head. He doesn't give an answer of rules. He gives an answer of the heart. And he does so by telling this story of the Good Samaritan. So we probably all know the story, even if we didn't grow up in church. Um, there's a, a Jew who's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho and he's robbed and left for dead. And a Jewish priest walks by and doesn't help him. A Levite walks by, doesn't help him. And then a Samaritan comes and helps the man. And the story is so powerful and significant for Jesus's uh, original hearers because the Jews hated Samaritans. The Samaritans were racially, culturally, and religiously different than the Jews. Yet the Samaritan, the enemy of the Jews, helps the man. And of course, Jesus's point in that story is that everyone is our neighbor and that to love your neighbor looks like going out of your way and being inconvenienced in order to serve those who don't look like you, act like you, or think like you. And I think that's what Jesus has in mind when he's talking about loving our enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not talking about sports rivalries or past national wars. He's talking about enemies that you encounter every day in your life, even if you wouldn't call them enemies. He's talking about Republicans and Democrats. He's talking about blacks and whites, Christians and non-Christians, people from the city versus people from the country, people who have money, people who don't. And the true intent of the Old Testament law wasn't love your neighbor and don't worry about everyone who's not like you. It wasn't love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It was love your neighbor and every single human being is your neighbor. So Jesus calls us to love and to pray for these people. Whatever it looks like for you to love those you disagree with, you're different than, or you just don't like, a wholehearted kingdom response, a life of flourishing means loving that person. And for the last of these six examples that Jesus gives us, he actually gives us a bit more context for why. He gives us a motivation. Why should we live like this? In verse 45, he says that if you love your enemies, you'll, you will be sons of your father who is in heaven. For God makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the just and the unjust. So Jesus is saying that if you love God, if you love your, your enemy, excuse me, you have God as your example. 
God doesn't hate those who don't believe in him. He doesn't hate those who hate him. He doesn't hate his enemies. Instead, he still provides grace to them in the form of life and sustenance, sun and rain. Then Jesus ends with these, uh, these rhetorical questions that really get under our skin. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So Jesus is asking us, if we only love people who love us, how are we any different from our so-called enemies? Surely even our enemies love those who love them. If we greet and are hospitable and are welcoming to those who are like us, how are we any different from those who are not like us? Surely even they welcome their own. But Jesus calls us to be different, doesn't he? What did Jesus say back at the beginning of the sermon? He said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And Jeff told us, with, without Jesus's people in the world, there is not going to be any salt and light. It's just gonna be decaying darkness. And so as Christians, if we don't love those who don't look like us, think like us, and act like us, then we're only going to be contributing to that darkness instead of providing the salt and the light. Instead, Jesus is calling us to be like God, be like our Father in heaven. God has a lot more enemies than we are ever going to have, doesn't he? Every single human being in the history of the world has turned away from God, made himself an enemy with God, and yet what did God do to his enemies? He didn't ignore us or gossip about us or argue with us or kill us. Instead, Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So God pursued us, he restored us, he redeemed us even when we were enemies of his in every area of our lives. That's the way of the kingdom. So as Christ's followers, we should be pursuing those who are not like us, our enemies. We should be seeking restoration with them. We should be seeking redeemed relationships just like God has with us. If we don't live this way, then we won't be like God and we'll fail to be salt and light in the world. This love that comes from God and proceeds to others is also a major theme in the book of 1 John. In 1 John 4, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I love the combination of tenderness and warning in John's voice in this passage. He's tender when he says, beloved, if God loved us, we should love others. But in the same time, he's got that warning tone. He says, if, if you're not marked by love, then you can't know God because God is love. And Jesus then concludes this section of the Sermon on the Mount with verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 
And Jeff included this verse in his sermon from a few weeks ago, so I won't hit on everything here, but we do want to see this verse as a summary of this section that we've been in for the past four weeks or so. Here's how Dallas Willard summarizes these last few verses. He says, Jesus says to his disciples, because you are living from God as citizens of the kingdom, have the kind of wholeness, full functionality that he has. Jesus is inviting us into God's wholeness. I love this summary because it hits on the major themes that we've seen um, the past several weeks. It starts with living from God. This kind of wholehearted devotion to God has to start with God doing something in our hearts. The scribes and the Pharisees tried to follow rules, but it just ended up in dead religion because they didn't have the heart change that God has to do. Then it talks about living as citizens of the kingdom. So we don't live as citizens of earth or as the United States or as Edmond, Oklahoma. We live governed by the rules of and and the commandments and the ways of the kingdom of heaven. And then if we do that, this leads to this wholeness, this full functionality, this flourishing life that God has in mind for us. And we kind of can get a picture of how that works, right? It just taking the examples from this section, if, if you don't have to get even with someone every time they've wronged you, you're gonna have a lot more peace and a lot less stress in your life. If you don't insist on fairness, but willingly serve those who might not be able to serve you in return, you're gonna have the freedom to never feel taken advantage of or stepped on. If we love our enemies, we're not gonna have any enemies. And so we won't have the arguing and attacking and stress that comes when enemies interact with one another. Jesus isn't saying that if we live this way, we'll have a perfect life. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, he's gonna spend significant time talking about anxiety. And since he feels the need to talk about anxiety, he understands that living this way isn't going to eliminate all anxiety or hardship or anything like that. So don't worry, Jesus isn't preaching a form of the prosperity gospel here. But remember, he isn't preaching a gospel that says, get saved and go to heaven when you die. And it doesn't have anything to say about today or tomorrow or this week either. The good news of God's redemptive story told to us in the Bible is good news for us after death, yes. But it's also good news for us right now. God created the world so he knows the best way to live in it. And that's what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount, is inviting us to live in the world in that way. Essentially, Jesus is calling us to imitate himself here. Jesus didn't return our sin against him with retaliation. He returned it with his own death. Jesus wasn't worried about being taken advantage of, but he freely laid everything down. Jesus didn't hate his enemies, but he loved his enemies and he died for them. And Jesus is calling us as his followers to do the same. We can't do it without his help. We can't just strive to obey these things that Jesus is asking us to do. We need a heart that is undivided, that is pure, like he said in the Beatitudes, that's wholly devoted to God. Let me pray and ask God to help us do that. Father, we confess that we have failed to live live this way, even this week probably. We just ask, we desire to live this life of flourishing in your kingdom, but we know that we can't do it without you changing our hearts. So we ask that you would give us hearts that are wholly devoted to you, 
that are set on you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.